0: Please take your Bibles and join me in Psalm 139. Turn to Psalm 139, a familiar psalm. Last week we were able to look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is also familiar. We were looking to our firm foundation in an unstable world where Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. We had a great time looking at that psalm. And we saw really three main points that helped us understand what to do In the midst of life's difficult circumstances and chaotic circumstances, Uh, point number one from last week is we need to let the nature and character of our God change our perspective. Point number two is that we need to let the nearness of our God be our peace, that he is near to us and it is our peace that he is near to us. And ultimately, number three, we need to let God's triumphs in the past be our hope for the future. God won in the past and he will win in the future and we get to win with him. But there were a couple of you who asked, what does that look like practically? How do you live that out practically? What does it look like? We talked a lot about prayer last week in the moment of crisis and the moment of trial to look to Jesus and find your hope and your satisfaction in him. And many of you asked, a couple of you asked, what does it look like practically? And I think Psalm 139 is a good place to go. David here is gazing at the nature of God, and in doing so, he reveals for us what it looks like to gaze through prayer and through admiration and respect upon the nature of God. One writer said it this way, David's Psalms divinely reveal to us what it sounds like and looks like for a human being to choose God through prayer rather than to choose the flesh when the going gets tough and unfixable. Pouring out his heart to God and waiting for God to work upon the broken areas of his life was David's normal approach when he was hiding in a cave from Saul, or when enemies revealed to Saul's, uh, to Saul David's whereabouts, or when Absalom, his own son, was trying to dethrone him, David chose candid prayers from his heart. He expressed through the Psalms the full range of his emotions, appealing to God rather than his own devices to secure him and to protect him. In response to very specific life situations that were overwhelming or devouring him, David chose God in prayer. And I believe Psalm 139 demonstrates David choosing God in prayer in the midst of chaotic circumstances. Now, we are familiar with Psalm 139. And those of you who are familiar with it might hear that and say, what difficulties is David going through in Psalm 139? This is the, uh, this is the baby greeting card, right? You knit me in my mother's womb. You form me in the inmost parts. This is a day spring greeting card, not a I'm going through difficult trials, help me God kind of a song. And I think, uh, though those DaySpring cards get it right, one passage in Psalm 139 that you will not find on any greeting card is found in verse twenty, verse 19. Go to verse 19. 19, 20, 21, 22. There's a stanza that is left out, maybe even from your memorization of this passage. David says, "Oh that you would slay the wicked, O oh God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Now you know why it's not on a greeting card." And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred, and they have become my enemies. It's not on a greeting card because, you know, you don't say, oh, uh, praise the Lord for your brand new baby, open it up, and I hate wicked people. Like, it's, it's very confusing. We see the bipolar nature of the psalmist yet again, but I think... I believe that this lost stanza of Psalm 139 is crucial to helping us understand what's going on in David's life, that he would write what he's writing. I think that David is sitting in verses 19 through 22. In fact, you can see the wicked are still around, obviously, because David is praying, please slay them. May they depart from me. They're with me. They're against me. They speak. They're speaking against you. It's not they have spoken. They are currently in the process of maligning God and maligning David. And they have become his enemies. So in the midst of that, in the midst of that kind of lost stanza, I believe we find David fighting to see the character and nature of God to inform his chaotic circumstances. Now, we don't know the background. We don't know what David is going through. We just know that there are wicked men that desire to kill David, and there are wicked men that hate God. That's all we know. We know David is the author from the superscription. It's for the choir director, a psalm of David. But that's all that we know. We don't know what's going on, but we know something's going on, and the reality is in life something's always going on, right? Something is always, it's just the next trial, the next difficulty, the next suffering. And it's all relative, yes, but it's the next area of hardship or difficulty. And I believe that where Psalm 46 told us, hey, do this when you come to these circumstances, Psalm 39 will say, this is what I am doing in the midst of these circumstances. And I think it's crucial to lay lay out and kind of give the application uh, from Psalm 139 of last week's sermon in Psalm 46. Psalm 139 is often, most often, characterized as a wisdom psalm, but that stanza that we read earlier is a stanza of what we would call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is just David or the psalmist praying judgment upon the wicked. What do we do with those psalms? How do we understand it? We haven't come across really an imprecatory psalm, and this one isn't totally that. That's why most people characterize it as a wisdom. They classify it as a wisdom psalm, because it's giving helpful, what is wisdom? It's skillful living. This is how to live in circumstances when you're struggling and, and fighting for faith or fighting to clench on to the, the, the character of God and cling to him. How do you do that? How do you do that rightly? How do you do that appropriately? That's what we'll see this morning as we go through this psalm because Psalm 139 teaches us how to live in the midst of evil wickedness especially when it's happening around you near you and to you and the sentiments that we found earlier in that stanza are not alone in just psalm 139 turn to psalm 13 just really quickly to see another expression of god are you there what are you doing where are you and will you destroy my adversaries psalm 13 another psalm from david david writes how long O lord will you forget me How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 139, David's saying, please take the wicked away. What are you doing waiting? In Psalm 13, he's saying, what are you doing waiting? How long are you going to hide? How long? I have sorrow in my heart all the day long. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? God, please listen. Help. Take care of me. I believe that's the foundation of Psalm 139. That little stanza helps inform why David goes where he goes So David looks to God. David looks to God in the midst of his troubles, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his circumstances. And again, it doesn't have to be suffering. Whatever circumstance you're going through, you must look to God and rightly see your circumstances as God's character and nature changes your perspective. So, very simply for us this morning, there are four specific attributes of God that bring peace in the midst of trials. There are four specific attributes that David looks to to find peace in the midst of his difficult circumstances. If you struggle with the question, why God? Why are you doing this? If you struggle with the question, where are you God? Have you forgotten me? You're not alone. David's asking those questions as well. And as he asks those questions, he gives four affirmations of God's character that will bring peace in the midst of the storm. Let's go through them together one by one as we find them in our passage. Verse 1 through 6 we see the first attribute of God that David stares at that brings him peace. The first attribute in verses one through six is that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Uh, we would call that in theology, he is omniscient. His omniscience. Omni-all, science, knowledge. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Look at how David describes this knowledge, this omniscience of God in verses one. To six, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Notice just how many times he uses the word know, known, or synonyms of that word. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed behind me and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. If we're honest, when we come to questions, one of the first, or when we come to trials, one of the first questions that we ask is, okay, God, why? Do you have a purpose? What are you doing here? Why would you let me go through this? Why would you let me go through this trial? What's your purpose? What are you doing? Do you even know what's going on? And I think that's why David starts with yes. God's character is one that he is all-knowing. Yes, God knows. It's not that God is surprised when he sees his people going through trials. God knows. God plans, God ordains, and he knows. And that's why David starts by saying, you have searched me and known me. You have looked upon me and you have known everything there is to know about me. Verse 2, you know when I sit down or when I rise up. You know everything about me at every moment in the day. God knows he knows everything. Steve Lawson says it this way. How can a God so immense, be so imminent, so close, know you so well? Such is the mind-boggling yet soul-comforting reality about our infinite yet intimate God. He's infinite. He's grand. He's glorious. And yet he's close to you and he knows. Richard Sibbs says it this way. How shall finite people comprehend the infinite? We shall apprehend him, but we shall never comprehend him. God knows us. We can never fully know him. God knows us fully, intimately. That word for knowledge is not just intellectual knowledge. It just doesn't know things about you. You remember that word knowledge is used uh, in the early setting of uh, Genesis. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's used to refer to sexual relations, intimate relations in marriage. And it's used that way because it's not just head knowledge. It's a deep abiding, lasting, intimate knowledge that one person has for another. God knows you and me that way. God knows us that way. And David tries to find every which way he can to describe this kind of knowledge. He says, you have searched me, which is investigated or examined. You know everything there is to know about me. He takes time to know who we are and what we're doing. And then he says, verse 2, you... And you can't see this in your English Bibles. My my Bible says, you know, when I sit down. Uh, It's really an an emphasized, it's an emphatic personal pronoun. You, yes, you, only you. There's no one else like you. Only you are the one who knows everything there is to know about me. That's what he's saying in verse 2, and he says it in a very poetic way. He says, you know, literally, my sitting down and my rising. Every time I am alive, he knows where you are sitting right now. He knows that these seats are empty, and he knows those seats are filled. And he knows why you sat where you sat. He doesn't just know where you are. He knows why you're sitting where you're sitting. Maybe you don't want to get spit on this morning. So you decided, I'm not in the splash zone this morning. I'm going back. Maybe that's why this whole row is empty in the front. Keith and Joan are the adventurous ones over here. He knows everything. There is no moment when we aren't either up or down. That's the whole point of Verse 2, you know sitting down or rising up, you know everything. You understand my thought from afar. You are so far away, and yet you still know every thought that I am thinking. Verse 3, you scrutinize. uh, Literally, you winnow. You sift out my thoughts. You can discern good thoughts, bad thoughts, righteous thoughts, wicked thoughts. You know everything there is to know, and you can winnow out. You can discern between the wheat and the chaff in in my thoughts. And you scrutinize, you winnow out my path. Literally, it's my journey and my going forth and my lying down. David's trying to find every way that he can to say, God knows everything. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. That's the definition of knowing. Intimately acquaint, uh, acquainted, it's a synonym. Even before there's a word, he's going to get specific here. He's going to try and give an example. God knows everything he's been saying. But now he says, verse 4, here's an example of his knowledge. Even before there is a word on my tongue... Behold, O Lord, you know it all. He knows every word that we are going to speak even before we speak it. He knows every thought that we have and every word we're going to speak before we speak it. And that's not just you. that's not just David, that's every single human on the planet. So what are we at? Over seven billion people in the world now. He knows the thoughts of over 7 billion people in the world at this moment. And he knows every single word they're about to say or thinking of saying at the exact same moment. God knows everything. Behold, O Lord, you know it. Verse 5, you have enclosed behind me and before That's just an idea of protected me. You are surrounding me. You know what's coming up and you're going to protect me. You know what came behind and you're going to guard me. You know you protect me. You lay your hand upon me. That's not in a bad way. That's in a good way. You're with me and you know me and you guide me and you protect me. And all of this leads to verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Not only can I never know as much as God knows, but I can never fully understand what God understands or how he knows everything he knows. Chrysostom, an early church leader, said this way, what he is saying is this, I thank you, God, that I have a master whom I cannot comprehend. What he is speaking of here is God's omniscience, and he is showing that this is the very thing that he does not understand, namely how God can know everything. Everything. Another author says it this way. Why would someone speak of Yahweh's knowing everything about them? Jeremiah does so when under attack from people in the conviction that Yahweh knows he is faithful and will therefore act against his attackers. So Jeremiah, in the midst of somebody attacking, wanting to claim his life, says, God, you know why? Because the first question we normally ask is, God, do you know, do you see, do you care? And the affirmation, God's. you know, you're all knowing. You do know, you do care. And that's why Jeremiah goes there. This author continues. Psalm 17, verse 3, speaks in similar terms of a confidence that Yahweh will find his faithful, truly committed, which is part of the basis for an appeal for Yahweh's deliverance from attackers. God knows everything. He knows every single aspect of who you are, of what you've gone through, of what you're going through, of what you are going to go through. He knows everything. And that's the first place where David turns in the midst of verses 19 through 22. He turns to God's, you know, you know. So you say, how do you find peace out of this? How do you find peace out of this? Because if we're honest, turn to Psalm 35. If we're honest, the knowledge that God has towards us, his omniscience is a comfort. But if we're honest... It's also a little bit of making the problem worse, right? He knows everything that there is to know. So if he knows, where is he? Why isn't he acting? Psalm 35, verse 15. At my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together, his enemies. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing like godless jesters at a feast. They gnashed at me with their teeth. And then, verse 17, here's the consolation, God knows, and also adds to the problem. Lord, how long will you look on? David affirms, you know. But is it just knowledge? Do you just know? Are you going to do something about it? He sees, he knows intimately every detail of the universe but is he going to jump into your world and help you? Is he going to be with you as you go through the trial? I think that's why David orders Psalm 139 the way he does. God knows so much, just an example of all of the things he knows uh, given to us in Psalm 139. But does he know about what I'm going through specifically? Does he care? I think when we go through trials, the first question is do you know? Do you know what's happening? Second question that David asks a lot is Where are you? Where are you? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? You look on, but you're not here. Where are you? And that's why point number two David looks in verses 7 through 12 at God being all present. Not only is God all knowing or omniscient, number two, the second characteristic, the character quality of our God that brings peace is that he is all-present. He is present everywhere. Otherwise known in theology as omnipresent. All omnipresent here. Yes, he knows. He's all-knowing. And yes, he's with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's with you. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I can't. If I ascend, I love, check out the poetry here in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven north, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, whether that's death or hell, it's down south. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, where does the sun rise? In the east. And if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea for David, which he's in Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. But David's saying, you are north, south, east, west. You are everywhere. I can't get away from you. (laughs) If I had been writing this, I would have just said it that way. I would have just said, God, you are north, south, east, west. And that's why we're all happy I didn't write the Psalms. That would be the worst poems ever written. I love the way he says that. God is everywhere. He's present everywhere. Here's Here's a question that some people ask sometimes. If God's present everywhere... Is God in hell? People go, I know. Oh, wait, that's hard. Okay, we know God is present everywhere. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. If he's not in hell, then he's not omnipresent because hell is a real place and he's not there. So he's not, how do we I think David would say, and I think that the Bible would say very clearly, oh, God is very present in hell, but only one attribute of God is present in hell. Only God's wrath. If God's wrath weren't happening in hell, then hell wouldn't be hell. God is very present in hell, but it's only his wrath that is present. And David says, I could go there. I could make my bed in death or even in hell, and you are still there. No matter where I go, if I go to the east, if I go to the west, you are there. Verse 10, even there, no matter where I go, even there, wherever I go, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be my night. It will come in and enclose me and destroy me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. John Calvin says it this way, though one should fly with the speed of light, he could find no recess where he would be beyond the reach of divine power. Speaking of darkness and light and the analogy that David's giving, Steve Lawson says dark times are light to God. David's in the midst of a dark time, but he says even the dark times that I'm going through are light to you. God is present in them knowing perfectly all that is transpiring and what his eternal purposes are. So even in the midst of the dark circumstances, God sees it as light because he knows what's going to come from them. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. Dark is light to you. Even the darkness of the trials, as it's hiding you and enshrouding you, you cannot be hidden from God. So in the midst of pain and suffering, we ask, God, do you know what's going on? Do you see this? Yes. God is all knowing. God is omniscient. Okay, okay. You, you see, but you're seeing from afar. Where'd you go? Have you forsaken me? No, he's omnipresent. He's here with you. He's in your midst. Turn to Job really quickly. If you go to Job chapter 23, chapter 23, you'll see this is what Job is wrestling through as well. In the midst of his trials and circumstances, here is the struggle present in Job's heart and mind. Job 23, verse 1. Job replied, he is longing for God here, and he says, even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. So he's here, but his hand is heavy. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I know his hand is on me, but he feels far away. I want to find him. I want to be near him, and I want him to be near to me, that I might come to his seat, that I might sit with him and reason with him. Verse 4, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. And then he says this, I I wish I could be with him, but, verse 8, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. It feels like he's gone. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But, though it feels that way, what does Job say? He knows the way I take. When he tries me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows that he feels far away, but he knows he's there. He's with me and he's trying me. He's taking me in his hand and trying me. And when he has finished the trials, I will be proven to be gold. Habakkuk says the exact same thing on, on your discussion questions. I just have you read the whole book for uh, your devotions. Don't worry. It's only three chapters long and they go by very quickly. But that's what Habakkuk starts with. Where are you, God? You left us. Do you know? Do you care? Do you see? Where'd you go? And then the last verses of the last chapter, Habakkuk makes a switch and says, God, all we have is you. Instead of where'd you go, it's all we have is you. Everything else has gone away, but you haven't gone anywhere. And because you are still here with me, I can find peace and rest. That's where David goes as well. You're everywhere. You are everywhere at all times. You know everything. You're everywhere. Number three, verses 13 through 18. God is all powerful. That'd kind of be the next question we'd ask, right? Okay, God, do you see? Do you know? Okay, you see and you know. Yes, you are all knowing. Okay, where are you? Where'd you go? Are you here? Did you forsake me? No, God is with you. He is omnipresent. He is here in your midst. Okay, then if he's here and he knows, then he must just be completely powerless to do anything about my circumstances. No. Third affirmation that brings peace. God is not powerless. God can jump in at a moment's notice and change everything. He knows, He sees, He's there, and He is all powerful. We would say in theology he is omnipotent, omni, all, and potent, strong, all powerful. He's also sovereign. You could kind of put that in the same heading. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. And the example that David uses in verses thirteen through sixteen or through eighteen really are just beautiful of the power and precision that God wields. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You formed all of the, the kidneys, all the, the uh, in, internal organs. You formed everything. You wove me together like a tapestry in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am made with a sense of awe, I am made with a sense of wonder. And he says, your works are wonderful. What you do is amazing, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not even one of them. Every single day that you are to live out was written in God's book before you lived it out, including the days of trouble that you go through. God wrote that down. God planned it. God ordained it. God wrote it down. He knows it's not a surprise to Him. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has planned everything before you. And as we experience it as a surprise to us, our God is never surprised. I think it's just interesting. Obviously this is a passage that we've heard many times. It's memorized. It's, it's preached um, on Sanctity of Life Sundays and I, it's appropriate as God forms a little one in the womb. It's God who opens the womb. It's God who closes the womb. It's God who forms and that uh, little baby being formed is a human life. And so this is appropriate to preach on a Sanctity of Life Sunday. But what is David trying to get across? He's trying to say, you know everything there is to know about me. You know your presence and look at the precision with which he is working in my life. So as I'm going through horrific trials, horrific struggles, as I'm going through massive things, it's an easy thing for God to go in and just tweak little, hey, I can can deal with it, I can handle it. Look at the precision that he had. David could have looked elsewhere, and he does in other psalms. Psalm 19, he looks to the skies. He looks to the planets. He looks to the stars. Scientists tell us that it would take 500 billion years to journey around the perimeter of the universe, traveling at the speed of light. So travel 186,000, 100,000 miles per second at the, the speed of light. That's the speed of light. Travel that fast, for 500 billion years and you can potentially make it around the galaxy, the universe. The sun. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles and can hold over 1 million planets the size of Earth inside. 1 million of us can fit inside of the sun. God blew up the sun, put it in the exact place that it needs to be and then he also formed every intricate part of you and me. God is enormous. The galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars and astronomers estimate that there are even billions of galaxies around us. So David can go both ways. Look at the grand, look at the enormous, look outward, look at the small, the precise inward. The bottom line is God is powerful to do anything. He forms life When no one knows it's happening, when no one knows it's taking place, being made, verse 15, in secret and being skillfully wrought by the power of God in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. You knew, you know you're there and you work with power. The summation of all of it is verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them all. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The idea of verse 18 is I go to bed thinking about how amazing your attributes are, and I can't even number all of them. And when I wake up, I'm still numbering them, and I can't get them off my mind. God knows everything. God is everywhere and skillfully works with power in every situation in the world. Whether it's the planets, the stars around us, whether it's inward parts in a A small baby being formed and knit in his mother's womb. God knows. God is there. And God, in his amazing power, works wonders. But all three of those attributes are nothing. They are not helpful. In fact, they are discouraging if we don't get the fourth attribute. Stephen Charnock says it best. Though we conceive God infinite in his majesty... "...infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, wise and immutable or unchangeable in his counsels. Yet if we conceive him destitute of this one excellent perfection, namely his holiness, and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make God but an infinite monster, and we sully all those perfections that we once ascribed to him before." It is, listen to this very carefully, it is less injury to God to deny his being completely than to deny the purity of his being. The one denying his being completely makes him know God. The other, a deformed, unlovely, and detestable God. In the midst of trials, we think, okay, God, do you know? Yes, he knows. Okay, God, are you here? Do you see what's happening? Yes, he's here. He's present. He sees. Okay, God, can you do something about it? Yes, I can. The next question is, then why don't you? You're just standing back, looking on. Are you some evil, wicked monster? Are you enjoying my pain? What are you doing? If you know, if you see, and you can do something about it, and you're not. God, where are you? Work. I think that's why David goes to this final attribute, the holiness of God. God is all holy. Verses 19 through 24, God is holy. I think we hear David's cry in verse 19. Oh, please slay the wicked, meaning there are wicked people still around him. But what is David calling upon? calling upon the holiness the righteousness the justice of god god don't let this happen anymore you are holy why are you letting wickedness reign and rule depart from me therefore men of bloodshed stop killing stop destroying stop mutilating why? Because they speak against you, God. It's not just about me. David wants freedom from his oppression, but it's not ultimately about me. God, you are holy, and they speak against you. Demonstrate your holiness, demonstrate your power, demonstrate your knowledge and your presence. Your enemies take your name in vain. Stop letting them do that. Verse 21 is a very difficult verse to swallow. People say God is a God of love, and He is, and people say that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and we should. Is what David is about to say right? I think it is. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? He's asking God to be on his side because of this statement. He's not sinning in the statement. He's saying, God, I hate evil. I hate those who hate you. That's why I'm asking you to work for me. So he's pleading with God on the basis of his own righteousness. So I don't think this verse is wrong. I don't think it's sinful. He ramps it up. End of verse 21. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And then a final statement. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? Is it loving to hate? Can a a person love and hate at the same time? How do we deal with this? First of all, we have to say that true love has within it hate. It has to. If you genuinely love something, you must hate whatever would be attacking it. You have to. Um, If you say you genuinely love Jewish people, then you cannot turn a blind eye to the Holocaust. You have to abhor what happened. If you love children and you want to protect them and care for them, then you have to hate pedophiles. You have to, because they are destroying the thing that you love and cherish so if you love the holiness of god then you have to hate any wickedness around you you have to necessarily the expositor's bible commentary says it this way devotion to the lord excludes any loyalty to those who hate him the psalmist manifests a spirit of discrimination this type of discrimination reveals itself in an evident resolution to keep himself untainted from any relationship with evil. He hates it, he abhors it, and he shuns the enemies of God. People say, well, but God, God tells us to love. I don't know where God commends hatred. Can I give you just one example of where God commends hatred? Uh, Revelation, 20, uh, Re- Revelation 2, you remember 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches? Revelation 2, Ephesus. What are they known for? They're known for leaving their first love, right? You have left your first love. And he has that. God writes a letter and he says, this I have against you, that you left your first love. You are lukewarm to me and I will spit you out if you stay that way. But he says, this one thing I have for you. You remember what it is? That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You hate it. And God says, that's good. That's good. That's good. Now, people go, well, but that says you hate the deeds. You don't hate the people. You hate the deeds. You hate what they're doing, but you don't hate the people. Doesn't God love the sinner, hate the sin? I think we've talked about this before. We have to be careful with things like that. Yes, that is true. I think D.A. Carson is helpful. He says there is a kernel of truth in that statement. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Here's the kernel of truth. God has nothing but hatred for the sin of the sinner, but... He has more than hatred for the sinner himself. God has nothing but hatred for the sin of the sinner. God does not love sin ever. But he has more than hatred for the sinner himself. He has hatred for the sinner and love. If you want to know how badly God hates sin and sinners, look to the punishment of hell. Look to the cross and see the the punishment of Jesus Christ slaughtered crucified, murdered on a cross and see what your sin and my sin cost our Savior. If you want to know the love that Jesus has for sinners, look to the cross. There you will see not even the payment of the wrath of God on the cross would separate you and me. J- Jesus gladly did that. He gladly took it. He loves and he hates. Second Peter 2. We can turn there. 2 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. A little bit more clearly, and I know we don't have time. This is a whole separate sermon, but, but it comes up with David's imprecatory psalm. How do we deal with imprecatory psalms? How do we deal with a man after God's own heart saying, I hate people? That's, that's hard to do. How do you deal with that? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. We don't normally think of Lot as an example to follow and yet God gives us Lot as an example to follow and what is the example in Lot's heart that is given to us as a virtuous thing? it's in verse 8 being tormented day after day by wickedness tormented inside struggling hating the reality is if if you do not hate evil and wickedness around you my question is do you genuinely love the holiness of God now we love and we care for and we pray for and we pursue the enemies of the gospel with love we do They don't need to nullify each other. But if you can just turn a blind eye to the wickedness going on, if you don't feel tormented inside because of the wickedness going on in your heart, my question is, do you have genuine love for the holiness of God? One pastor says it this way, a man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. A man that does not know how to be shaken at his heart's core with indignation over evil things is either a fungus or a wicked man. I love the way the 1800s, the preacher spoke. You're either a fungus or you are a wicked man. Now, back in Psalm 139, David's speaking up against the enemies. He says, I hate them. Obviously, he loves them. He desires that God would save them, and we should be praying the same thing. But here, there's an emphasis on hatred against the wickedness and what's happening and here's where I just want to insert one comment. When you deal, maybe you're not in a season where you're looking, going, why won't this wickedness stop around me? Why won't this evil stop? If you are looking to somebody else and they're struggling and they're asking you the questions, why, where is God? Does he know? It would be very easy for us to say, yeah, just look at Psalm 139. He knows. He's all knowing. You know that. You were there, he's present everywhere. He's all-powerful. Trust in Him. Come on. Why are you having a hard time? This is where, yet again, we just need to be careful. And this is the last time that we're really going to have a chance to dialogue about this uh, with our summer series through the Psalms. We have one more um, next week, Psalm 103. We'll end our summer series, and then we will dive back into what God would have for us. We've gone through it before in Job 6.26. the, The words of a despairing man are wind People in the midst of difficult struggles and circumstances and trials might say things. Remember Martin Luther's words last week. As he's going through trials, he says, Christ has completely abandoned me. Here's a giant of the faith, and he says, Jesus has completely abandoned me. He, he knows he, Jesus is not abandoned, but that's what he feels like. What do you do? Can I just give you some encouragement from a very helpful um, writer named Zach Eswine, He says it this way. Remembering Job's friends in the midst of comforting and and helping, trying to do what they wanted to do with good motives, but not doing it the right way. Job's friends, lacking sincere empathy, thought they knew more than they did. In their hands, and this is where we have to be so crucial about when we hear the Word of God preached and we internalize the knowledge and the wisdom of God's Word. This is where we need to be careful. In their hands, Doctrine alone excused ignorance. Correctness validated a cruel word. Truth, we learn from them, can be used unfeelingly and foolishly. Truth can be used to hurt people. The mandate to speak truth with love mutated into, I will tell it like it is. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. To my shame, I've been there. Oh, I know the right answer. Here's the right answer. Get with it. Here's what God's word says. Stop being the way you are. Thinking, truth in love mutates to, if I just tell you like it is, it'll fix the problem. I, I know people that, that say this. I had an interaction with um, a man a, a while back who was saying the right things in a very wrong way. And I said, you're never going to be heard. You're speaking the truth, but not in love. And so the truth you're speaking now sounds like error. And his response was, yeah, but you don't understand. I have the spiritual gift of being God's bazooka. That, that's not a spiritual gift. Let's just get that out. <clears throat> but can I just say it this way? If you speak the truth in love, and it's truth in a very difficult setting, you don't have to bring more offense to it. I have spoken the truth with people who need to hear it as I'm weeping with them and pleading with them. And there's not an ounce of malicious or just having like, I hate you and get this out and what's wrong with you? And they still hear it offensively because I'm speaking the truth. And I think that I'm speaking the truth in love. I need to take it before the Lord and ask him and search my heart. I think I'm speaking the truth in love, but the truth, when spoken in love, if it is true, it might offend. You don't need to bring that offense to it. Don't needlessly say, I want to offend. Continuing on in this quote, Job is thereby not only faced with all that ails him, now he must also deal, and I love how he says this, with all the daily texts, emails, letters, and phone calls of those trying to fix him in God's name. If you've been there before, oh, just get with it. Text, just do this. Just. And here's the response that the author gives. What if waiting in our seats means that we have to welcome feelings that we do not want for a purpose that is not ours so that we most what we most need can come from the only one who can truly give it? What if we just wait? What if we just wait? What if we hear the words of a despairing man that are wind just go by and we love and we take care of? And yes, we speak truth in love. I just love how he says that. What if waiting in our seats and not doing anything means that we have to welcome feelings that we do not want for a purpose that is not ours, so that what we most need can come from the only one who can truly give it? I think that's where David is. God. Why are you letting this happen? Do you have a reason? Yes, I'm all-knowing. I have a purpose. God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? No, I haven't. I'm all-present. God, can you do anything then? If you see, if you know, if you're here, then you're just letting this go because you can't lift a finger to help me. No, I made the universe and I made you. Then do you care? Yes. God is holy. And there's an affirmation in these verses that God's holiness will win the day. God is keeping score. And if God keeps score, here's the good news. You and I don't have to. If God is keeping score, you and I don't have to. The reality is suffering and pain and trials exist in this life, but they remain on borrowed time and they will never have the last word ever. So David ends, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me or painful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. A lot of people say that he's praying this prayer right off the heels of saying something that maybe he shouldn't have said. That as he's speaking, I hate my enemies. Then he asks the Lord, You know what? Can you search me? Because maybe my hatred's not right. Could be. It could be. But I don't think that's what it is because I don't think that he erred at all. I don't think that he sinned at all in those verses. I think that he's righteous in what he's saying. Please judge wickedness. I can't wait until we are righteous before you and we get to live in peace. But that statement, if we're honest, if we say, God, deal with the wickedness I see in somebody else, immediately must come back to us and say, you know what? If I ask you to deal with wickedness the way I'm asking you to deal with wickedness, you would destroy me too. So yes, it could be that he's saying something that, oh, be careful how you say it, so God, please know me. I think way more than that. I think the psalmist is saying, I see their wickedness, but I have so much wickedness in me. Maybe theirs is external and easily, obviously seen. Maybe mine's internal, but it's wicked to the core, just like theirs. And only by the grace of God am I not where they are. We have two options when we see wickedness. We have two options. We can either be the Pharisee in Luke 18, who sees a tax collector who is a wicked man and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. We can do that. Too often we do that in our pride. That Pharisee, by the way, is not held up as an example to us, right? That man's condemned. He, he walks away unjustified. I think when, when we look at the news, even today, You look at your Yahoo Facebook or Yahoo page or MSN homepage that pops up, and you see wickedness like you never thought possible in humanity. Your first reaction could easily fleshly be, I can't believe how anybody could do that, and God, thank you, I'm not like that. Or your second reaction, and I believe the more godly one, would be David's response. When you see the beheadings that are going on in the Middle East and you see wickedness to the core and evil like we wouldn't believe. You can say, God, thank you that my sin hasn't gotten that far, only by the grace of God, or else I'd be doing just the same thing. But even better would be to remember the words of Jesus. If you have hate in your heart towards somebody, you've beheaded them too. You are a murderer at heart. I am a murderer at heart. What they are doing externally is a reminder to me of what my heart is all the time. And I think that's why David goes there. God, they are in need of judgment and justice, and I I want your help. But before I want your help of taking out my enemies, please fix the enemy within me, my own sin. Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's a bookend to what he said earlier. You do know my heart, so really this is a prayer. Search me, know my heart, and then tell me what it is. Search it for me that I would know. I don't want to walk around an enemy of you in certain areas of my life. I want to be as righteous and holy as I possibly can be because you are completely holy and righteous. Spurgeon says it this way, As I hate the wicked in their way, so I would hate every wicked way in myself. This is what we should do every time that we are angry and hate the sin outside of us. David says, try my thoughts, know my thoughts, know what's going on. I'm anxious to get out of this trial and I realize that that's sin in and of itself, so help me. And then verse 24, see if there be any, literally painful, my Bible says hurtful, literally it's painful. What's the pain of the way in which David is going? Well, it's either, number one, painful to God because it's sinning against him and causing him pain, which it could be, or number two, it's painful to David because as he continues in sin, whether unknowingly or knowingly, continues in sin, it's painful to him because the way of the transgressor is hard. And I honestly think it could be both. The hurtful way that David is going, he says, please remove me from there. And then he says this, lead me in the everlasting way. That's the only time that phrase is used in the entire Bible. Lead me in the everlasting way. Why is it the everlasting way? Because it will never be brought to an end. In contrast, the way of the wicked ends in destruction. And the way of the righteous ends in eternal bliss and reward. These are four attributes that we must stare at, that David stares at to bring us peace in the midst of our trials. But we leave David yet again in the midst of the trial there's no verse 25 that says and thank you so much for destroying my enemies and now i have peace we leave him yet again and isn't that where we leave most of our trials we're stuck in them they don't get removed say god you're not winning (laughs) this is still happening where are you can i just encourage you with these truths Jesus doesn't see victory in this world the same way that I wish he would. Victory for me would be righting all of the wrong things. Victory for David would be destroying all of the atrocities in the world and peace. Victory for God was to let his son be murdered on a cross. That was victory. That's not victory to me. Remember Peter? Peter's idea of victory in the Garden of Gethsemane is let's kill them all. As they come to take us, I'm going to chop off Malchus' ear. I was going for his neck, but I'm really bad with the sword. Let's kill them all. And Jesus says, no, there's a, there's a better way. Your victory in defeating these men would be my defeat. My victory in letting them defeat me will be your victory. Jesus has a completely different timetable, a completely different way of looking at the evil that's going on. One writer says this, Is there a victory? Could there be a victory? Even when our foes dance over us with arms raised and gloves glistening, taunting us while we lie limp and seemingly down for the count? And the answer is yes. We know God wins, right? We saw that in Psalm 46. God won in the past, He wins in the future, and if you're on on His side, you win too. If God is holy though his sense of victory is not what we would want. And his timetable is definitely not what we want, right? We talked about that late, l- that last week. We talked about God is never late, but he is hardly ever early. The reality is in the midst of the trial, we must remember the cross and realize the greatest sin that ever happened in the entirety of the human race, the murdering of the Son of God, brought about the greatest victory ever possible. We've sung about God's power and we've sung about his might. All hail the power of Jesus' name. We've sung that he's omnipotent. We've sung about his majesty. We've sung about who he is, that he's present everywhere. Now I want to sing about God's holiness and let that lead us into a trust, a rest. Even as David is waiting and resting, God, deal with me and I'll wait as you deal with my enemies. You have a timetable that I don't have, but I will wait and I will trust in you. God is holy And so he is good and perfect. If we didn't have that last point, we would just have a very ruthless, angry, unmanageable God. But we have a God who only does what is right, what is good, and has promised to do what is good for you and for me. So let's trust in his holiness, rest in his goodness, and then praise him for being our great God. Father, we thank you for your amazing control over every circumstance in our lives. We thank you for the reminder of David staying in the midst of a trial and not getting out, that the men around him were still desiring his life, but he trusted in you and found his hope in you. May we find our hope in your holiness this day for your glory. Amen.